We know a lot about Navy SEALs, I think, over the last couple of years through just hearing different stories and things that have happened. My brother is in the Navy, so I thought of this as I was preparing this. He's here and his family visiting with us this morning. That is an incredibly difficult job. You don't just choose one day, I'm going to wake up and, you know, I think maybe I'll be a Navy SEAL today. There's an incredible amount of work that goes into preparing to do that, leading up to that, then in the process and the rigorous test mentally, physically, to then become a Navy SEAL. You don't just fill out an application and say, hey, here we go. You have to take on a whole new identity if you're going to be a Navy SEAL. You have to take on a whole new reality of this is who I am. You take that on, and your commanding officers are going to make sure you take that on as well and remind you of who you are to be. So it's a huge, huge responsibility, an incredibly difficult task. And in order to be a Navy SEAL, there's lots of things you have to say no to. Because of the new reality of who you are and what you are going to be, there are things that you say no to, and there are things that you definitely have to say yes to. And you're, again, your commanding officers are going to make sure you say yes to those things. But there's a reality here. You have to own that. You take that for yourself. And that means putting away some things you might have otherwise done. As we come to this passage this morning, we're going to look into that new reality of who we are in Christ. Who we are in Christ will change the things that we do and the things that we don't do. Paul's going to introduce to us the idea of things that we put on and things that we take off, like a garment, things that we put on and things we take off, things that belong in the life of the believer and things that don't belong there, things that should not be a part of this new reality. So let's go ahead and let's read chapter 3 of Colossians, and we're going to look at 1 through 4. And I got my glasses this morning. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If then you have been raised with Christ. This isn't a possibly you've been raised with Christ or I hope you've been raised with Christ. This is if you've been raised with Christ. This could be better understood of as since you have been raised with Christ. You are dead to this world. Dead to the world, dead to sin. It was your reality that you were dead in your trespasses and your sins, but that's not you anymore. Now you are dead to the world. You are dead to the enslavement of sin that no longer binds you. You have a new life in Christ. You've been raised with him. We've talked over the last couple of sermons about being baptized into Christ and how they would have understood that to be fully associated with Christ and everything that came along with that. Us receiving those spiritual benefits of the physical reality of what Jesus went through. We are baptized into him, fully taking every benefit that comes with that. And part of that is that new life that is found in Christ, being raised with him, no longer dead to sin. Verse 3, we're going to skip ahead just a minute here. Verse 3 of this chapter, or of this chapter says, For you have died. The old you has died. The old self, Romans 6, 6 tells us. We're going to take a look at that real quick. 
Here's your homework, part of your homework for this week. If you read verses 1 through 8 of Romans 6, it'll give you an even more complete picture than what I'm able to explain right at this moment. But 6 through through 8 of Romans chapter 6 say this, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. That is our reality. The old you is dead. In Christ, you have a new life. You have been raised with him. Dead to the world, dead to sin and its enslavement, no longer uh, stuck within its structures, no longer enslaved by it. Now you're a slave to righteousness. And we're to seek those things that are above, where Christ is. Set your mind on things that are above. Seek those things that are above. This is the total opposite of where Paul had us last week, where he was talking about those legalistic Jews and the Gnostics and whichever group was trying to come in and add things to the faith of these Colossian believers. They were trying to come in and add things that as you looked at them, some of them very clearly were prideful. Some of them, as you peeled back those layers, you saw the pride that was built into it. This is the opposite of that. Seek those things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. Set your mind on Christ. You're dwelling on him. You're not dwelling on you. You're not dwelling on what you have done. You're not dwelling on what's happening with you. You're seeking those things that are above. You're setting your mind on him. That's the opposite of the prideful attitude that the legalistic people coming into the church would have had these young believers doing. You're to actively, intentionally set your mind on him, seeking those things that are above. This is done on purpose. It's not an accident. It's intentional. If you are intentionally, resolutely setting your mind on Christ, seeking those things that are above, then you are intentionally putting those other things that are not above, that are not Christ, putting those things in the periphery. You're not focusing on those things. You're intentionally staying focused on him. You have that goal in mind, and it is Christ. You have that goal in mind. You have that picture of who he is and what he's done for you. And that's what you're focused on. If you're going to become a Navy SEAL, you have to stay focused on what your goal is. You have to stay focused on what the purpose is. If you let those other things on the periphery come in and start crowding out what you're to stay focused on, it's not going to work out very well for you as a Navy SEAL. Same thing when you're learning to drive. You're learning to drive. Your driving instructor says, keep your eyes on the road. you got to stay focused. Keep your eyes on the road. They remind you over and over and over again. Keep your eyes on the road. After you get your license, then it's your mom is telling you, keep your eyes on the road. Stay focused. Stay focused. Keep your eyes on the road. Now for me, it's Jenny helping me remember, keep my eyes on the road because I'm watching bikes. I'm like, oh, I think I know that person. Or I'm watching for deer in the fields or whatever. Keep your eyes focused on what's straight ahead. If I lose focus while I'm driving, there's a good chance we're going to crash the car, and we don't want to do that. If I lose focus on Christ, there's a good chance I'm going to get led off into things that don't belong there. There's a good chance I'm going to be heading in a wrong direction because I'm not looking above. I've not set my mind on the things of Christ. I've not stayed focused on where I need to be. We're to set our minds on things that are above, seeking 
him. And when we're doing that, we can remember that our old self is dead. The old you is gone. We have this new life that is hidden with Christ. We have been raised with Christ. We have a new life that is hidden with him. And nobody can take us out of his hand. Here's what it says in John 10. We're going to look at 27 through 30. I'm hoping I'm going to have time to get through all of these extra verses that come along with this because I think they help quite a bit. But if we don't, you're going to have more homework. But 27 through 30 say this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You are hidden with Christ like a treasure, and he is holding on to you. No one and nothing can change the reality of who you are in Christ. You are his. You have a new life that is in him. And nothing can change that. Neither death nor life nor anything else can remove us from the love of Christ. Nothing can change that because we are hidden with him. And he will not let you go. We have a new life that is found in him, a new reality. And someday he's going to appear in glory and we're going to appear with him too. And what we are now is just a shadow of what we are going to be. We have that new life within us, the life of Christ, the Holy Spirit in there giving us new life. And that shows on the outside, but it's still only just a shadow of what is going to be when we are with him face to face then we will be who we are made to be. Then we will be what he created us to be. This is just a shadow, but someday we're going to appear with him in glory. And I am so excited for that day. But if we're going to appear with him in glory, if we're going to reflect him as we should, as believers who have that life of Christ within us, that resurrected life within us, we should be reflecting him. And that means we have to say no to certain things things that do not belong in the life of the believer. And Paul's introducing here for us the things that we put off and the things that we put on. And really, this first point is just a really good introduction to where we're going to go for the rest of the sermon, but also where Paul wants to take us through the next couple of sermons. So this is just an introduction for next week as well. We're going to look this week at the things that we put off, the things that don't belong in the life of the believer. Next week, we're going to take a look at those things that do belong, the things that need to live there. But we need to be killing sin. If we're going to reflect the image of Christ, we need to be killing sin. Verses 5 through 9 of Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. John Owen Um, Perhaps you've heard his name. He was a Puritan pastor in the 1600s, and he's known for, among other things, writing the book, The Mortification of Sin. Anyone read The Mortification of Sin? 
oh, it's a good book we're going to have to put in the library, and I'll stick it out back, and you can read it. I don't think it's very long. Uh, he says, in the mortification of sin, he says, we are to be killing sin, or it will be killing you. That's a great phrase, and there's a ton of truth bound up within that. We are to be killing sin, or it will be killing you. It's not just something good to go on your mug or a t-shirt or on your calendar or whatever. Be killing sin. There are things that do not belong in the life of the believer. If you're not killing sin, then that sin is continuing to live in your life, and it will be killing you. And that's what Paul's introducing in these verses, here between verses 5 and 9. He's introducing those things that we need to be killing in our lives. He says, we're to put to death what is earthly among us. If we are going to reflect the new life of Christ that is within us, we must be killing sin. So what's on the inside of us? What's down within us? That natural, that total depravity that is just within us from Adam and Eve, natural, uh, 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 total depravity has carried on through every single human being apart from Christ. We are born with that sin nature. And we walk by the Spirit, Romans 8 tells us, but we still deal with this body of flesh here and now. We live in a sin-cursed world. Yes, we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Yes, he guides us. Yes, he leads us. But we still live in this body of flesh here and now. We still live in this world surrounded by other people that live in the flesh. And I'm thankful that somebody even like Paul understands this and wrote this very clearly in Romans chapter 7. He says in Romans 7, and if you want to look at the whole thing, 13 through 24 is really helpful, but we're only going to look at a couple of verses, 18 and 19, say this of chapter 7. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So even he struggled. The things he wants to do, he doesn't do. And the things he doesn't want to do, he keeps on doing. And then he says in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If even Paul struggled with this, then we're all in good ground. We're all standing in the same place that we struggle with the flesh. And Jesus says in Matthew 15 that these things that we struggle with, they come from within us. He says that's what defiles a person. It's not the things that come into the body, the things that you eat. It's not because you haven't had washed hands, he says in Matthew 15, but it's what's within you. That's what defiles a person. That depravity that is found within us. When we're in Christ, we're no longer bound to sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. Now we're slaves to righteousness. We don't have to go back to those things. We don't have to go back and be bound to that. Paul talks in most of his letters, somewhere it shows up, talks about being slaves of righteousness. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. We enslave ourselves. We can put ourselves back into it. The reality is, is that we have a new life. We don't belong there anymore. We end up there when we let ourselves go back. We end up there when we go back to that old muscle memory and we let ourselves listen to the flesh, listen to our bodies, and end up where Christ took us out of. Where, as we talked last week, those legalistic uh, religious people would have had us walking back into our pride, would have had us walking back into those legalistic structures, back into our sin. But that's what Christ took us out of. We have to be killing sin. So what are those things that we have to go to battle against, to fight against? 
Here's a list of things that Paul gives us. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. Each of these carry the idea, either explicitly or implicitly, of being a sensual sexual sin. These things have no place in the life of the believer in any way whatsoever. Some of them are very explicit. Some of them are implicit, like uh, covetousness. If you are coveting something, that can lead to any single one of these things happening. Uh, there's a reason. Somebody, somebody once said there's a reason that covetousness is at the 10th commandment, because if you're coveting something, it can lead you to break all the other nine. So covetousness is just as much as something that does not belong in the life of the believer as sexual immorality. We have to be fighting these things. It says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Sexual sins are a total uh, mutilation, a totally depraved picture of what God originally created, what he made us to be. When God made the first two people and instituted marriage, what it was supposed to be was a perfect picture of complete love, trust, unity, and two people becoming one. That's what that was supposed to be. Any of these sexual sins, what they do is they tear that beautiful picture that God created, tear that apart, and what it becomes is something of fear, distrust, disunity, and manipulation. And that's the total opposite of the character and nature of who God is. These things don't belong in the life of anyone. They especially don't belong in the life of the believer. This was the reality, Paul says, of where these Colossian believers were coming out of. That's what they used to live in, but that's not where they live anymore. They once walked in these things, but that's not who they are now. Now they are alive in Christ. They have that new life within them. They don't live there anymore. They have that new life. They need to be putting those things to death, putting that off like you're taking off a coat. You take off a garment, it doesn't fit you anymore. It does not fit the reality of who you are. Have to kill those desires for those old sins, that old way of living. Um, Patrick introduced to me Solcon. So Solcon is, uh, there's a book that goes with it. It's accountability structure. Now it's a whole network of guys all around the world. And it's designed to help guys grow in their faith, grow in their relationship with the Lord, build accountability with each other, and to fight sin and see their bodies also be the temple of the Lord and take, a good, take good care of their bodies. And in that, they say, you are to put down the fork and pick up the cross. So we got to put down our fork. So what do they mean, the fork? The fork is that thing that feeds the flesh. Put down the fork that feeds your flesh. Because if you're feeding the flesh, you're not feeding the spirit. You're not letting the spirit work. You're feeding that thing within you, that evil, those evil desires, those sinful desires, the perversion of what God intended for us. If you're feeding your flesh, then you're not letting the Holy Spirit work. So put down the fork, pick up the cross, the instrument of your death. You are dying. You're dying to sin. You're dying. You're no longer slave to sin. But now you are alive in Christ. We're to put those things to death. Sexual sins have no place in the life of the believer. And they're not just going to roll over and die. They don't just give up. You have to kill them. You have to be intentional about that. Anybody who has struggled with any kind of sexual sin in any way knows it doesn't just give up. You have to kill it. You have to fill your mind with Christ, seeking the things that are above, setting your mind on him. 
and intentionally putting all those other things to the periphery, intentionally killing those things. Those are the things that do not belong in the life of the believer. That was the reality for the Colossians. That's what they came out of. That's where they lived. Their lives were characterized by these things, but not anymore. Paul tells them to put them all away. Put all of that behind you. But then he adds another list. So this first list we could call the the sensual sins. So that's the first list. This next list we're going to see, we could call the socially acceptable sins. Here's what he says in the following verses. He says, put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. So these are those socially acceptable sins. The things that, you know, they're not... They don't stand out quite so blatantly as cheating on your wife. Everybody knows don't cheat on your wife. But you can talk about your least favorite politician in a derogatory way. You can make fun of them when they do something wrong. That's more socially acceptable. That doesn't belong in the life of the believer any more than cheating on your wife does. So these might be socially acceptable sins, but sin is still sin. These things do not belong in your life. Out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaks. That's what Matthew 12, 34 tells us. So what is your heart reflecting? What do people see of who you are? What are they seeing of Christ in the things that you do? Whether they are socially acceptable sins or not, what are people seeing in your life? Are you reflecting Christ? So for anger and wrath. So the idea behind this is outburst of anger. So confession for this one. Um, I went out on, a, on my bike ride, or went out for a bike ride on Friday. So Fridays are my day off. Girls went down for a nap, went out for a ride, and I got to Commercial Street. So I was just coming back, got to Commercial Street in Portland, and there's an intersection there where their cars have an arrow to turn. I'm waiting at a red light, waiting for my turn. And here comes these cars. They're all turning. My light turns green. So I start to come into the intersection to go through. Well, this guy... Not this guy, but a guy, decided he's coming through regardless of whether I have the right of way or not. So he's starting to come through. I'm in the middle of the intersection by this point. He's still coming. So I don't shout at cars. I don't yell. Um, If they're going to hit me and they haven't seen me, I'll shout because I want to make sure they see me and they don't hit me. But I might just put my hands up like this and say, I don't know what you're doing. You know, this is, I have the right of way. I'm not sure what's happening. So I did this because I wasn't sure what he was doing. And he looked at me, he, his windows were up, thankfully, I couldn't hear what he said, but he said all kinds of things, let me know I was number one, and continued on through the intersection. I had a choice to make, I had two options. One option was to remember, I'm preaching on this on Sunday. I can't be, I can't let anger and wrath control what I'm doing. I need to let this go, I need to just continue riding my bike, and just let this wash over me, continue on. Or I could turn around, follow him back up the street, because he got stuck at a light. And his window came down at that point, and he started to yell stuff at me, but I wasn't listening. I could go and follow him and let him know just exactly what he did wrong and why it was wrong. What option do you think I chose, one or two? Oh, yeah, okay. I didn't pick two. Actually, there was a third. What I did was I stewed on the things that he did wrong for about two blocks and then remembered that should not be reflected in my life. I am reflecting the life of Christ, this new life within me. What good is that going to do for me to follow that guy and tell him everything he just did wrong? 
It's not going to do any good at all. Regardless of whether I am a pastor, I am reflecting the life of Christ. That does not belong in my life. It doesn't belong in your life. And I have to work on that just as much as anybody else. This list is just as much for these young believers in Colossae as it is for pastors or anyone who's been a believer for a long time and knows better than this. I know better than to get angry at drivers, even if they do dumb stuff. I should not be controlled by anger. I should not have sudden outburst of wrath. It does not reflect the life of Christ that is within me. About malice and slander, these things show up very easily within our Christian circles, often under the idea of, hey, can you pray for this? Um, in pastor circles, I've seen this over the years in CEF, and then just being part of those pastor circles over the years, often what happens is you'll have pastors being like, oh, I can't believe so-and-so did that again. They did this, and, and all the, they'll start complaining about all this stuff that's happening within this church, and these big, uh, big problems, and I wish so-and-so would stop doing thus and so, but guys, can you pray for it, or hey, can you help me? Sometimes their guys are really looking for help. Sometimes it really is something to pray about. Too easily what it does is it slides into malice and slander. Pastors need to focus on this and put these things out of their life just as much as anybody else. It does not matter how long you have been a believer, you are still always going to have to fight these things. And I think it probably gets harder and the battle gets sharper the longer you are in Christ because you see sin more clearly for what it is and you understand your flesh to be weak as it is. You have the life of Christ working in you, and hopefully there's that sanctification that helps you fight that more strongly, but you see those lines drawn more distinctly. Um, next one, obscene talk. For some reason, my generation seems to think that that's okay to use obscene language or use God's name in vain. I'm not sure why that is. I've known quite a few people in my, my generation that just feel like that's okay. I don't know why, but there it is. That shouldn't belong in the life of the believer. We are to stand out in the things that we say, the things we do. Our words are to be gracious, seasoned with salt, not salty. We are supposed to be uh, bringing up other people bringing them up with us and lifting them up in the things that we say and the things that we are talking about, not in the obscene things that do not represent Christ. They do not reflect him. And then finally, don't lie to one another. He says, don't lie. This finishes out that list of socially acceptable sins. It's real easy to exaggerate things for our benefit it's real easy to pad the results just a little bit to make ourselves look better. If anybody should feel comfortable to speak the truth, it ought to be in Christian circles. There is no room for lying. There's no, no room for uh, mistrust. There's no room for deception within the body of Christ, within the life of a believer. It doesn't belong there. It needs to be killed. These socially acceptable sins need to be killed in the life of the believer just as much as any of those sensual sins need to be killed in the life of the believer. They don't belong there. When we let those things continue to live in our life, the life, the new life that Christ has given us is not going to shine as clearly and we're going to struggle. There's going to be a battle within us if we let those things live. So I did a little bit of counseling with a younger guy that I'd known for a while. He was having some trouble in his marriage. They'd only been married a year and a half, maybe two years. We're sitting there talking over coffee. And he said that the single me is still alive and well. 
And that brought up really big red flags immediately. And I said, you, there is not a single you anymore. When you got married and you said, I do, that single you died. That single you no longer exists. Now it is the two of you are one. And that single you needs to be gone. And he said, oh, no, that single me is still alive and well. There's going to be problems in that marriage until the single person is gone, no longer living anymore. Put that away. Put that out. That does not belong in the life of the married person anymore. You are one. Two have become one. The single you is gone. These things need to be put out of the life of the believer. They do not belong there anymore. You have to do that intentionally, whether they are those sensual sins or those socially acceptable sins. Because you've got to remember that the standard for this is not man. The standard for this is God. It doesn't matter if it's socially acceptable or not to make fun of a politician. It doesn't matter if it's socially acceptable or not to gossip about somebody within the, the, cert, the right circle. It doesn't matter because man's not the standard. God is the standard. Those things don't belong in the life of the believer. He is holy and we are not. And I am to put away anything that would tarnish the reflection of Christ. I am to be reflecting him to a world that is watching on. And anything that would tarnish that reflection does not belong. We're being sanctified. We are growing. We are changing. He's doing work in us. I am not perfect. You are not perfect. Every single day there will be opportunities to sin. Every single day there will be opportunities to poorly reflect the life of Christ. But every single day ought to see us taking another step closer to reflecting him greater, to reflecting him more. So your standard is God. Your standard is him. And here's what you have to do with this. So we talked all last week about those legalistic structures, those legalistic things that we can fall into. And here Paul is giving us list of things that we shouldn't do. Don't do this. Don't do that. Put this away. That doesn't belong here. Is that legalism? It's not legalism in this case because we can check this through the same framework that we talked about last week where we can say, is this me trying to achieve... A, uh, a favor with God, trying to earn my salvation, or is this me trying to reflect the life of Christ that is within me in a greater and stronger way and growing in greater spiritual discipline? So if we use that framework, then we can look at these things and see that all throughout Scripture, the rest of these things are also condemned there. All of those things are the total opposite of the character and nature of who God is. They don't belong in our lives. They do not reflect who God is. So we can confidently look at that and say, no, Paul's not being legalistic here. What he's doing is pushing us to a greater spiritual discipline. He's pushing us to a greater understanding then of who Christ is. As we put these things out of our life, we seek those things that are above. We set our mind on him. It's not legalism, it's greater spiritual discipline. We can reflect him better as we put off those things, and then we're going to take a look at what we put on. So we are to be reflecting his image. We're going to look at 9b through 11. So he says, seeing as you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So you have put off that old self. 
You've put that off. It's like a garment. That's the idea here in the Greek. It's like a garment. You have taken it off, a once-for-all action. You've taken that off. It does not fit you anymore. It does not belong in the life of the believer. And then you have put on this new self. You've put on this fresh, clean garment. And you are being renewed in the knowledge and the image of the Creator. This is sanctification. You're being renewed. Not instantly perfect. In God's eyes, you are justified. In God's eyes, you are holy, holy, blameless, and righteous. You are declared perfect in front of him. You're justified. But here and now, we still battle against this body of flesh. We are being sanctified. We have to learn to live out that reality. The reality of who we are in Christ ought to then be reflected in our lives. We have to learn that. We have to learn what that looks like. The Holy Spirit guides us. His word informs us. But we've got to do the walking. Philippians 2, 1 through 18. Again, another great passage to help us to understand this better. We're only going to look at verses 12 and 13. Here's what Paul writes in Philippians. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. What in the world is Paul saying here? We're to work out our own salvation. What we're not doing is earning our salvation. We're working that out. What does that look like in your life? And in verse 13, it fills that in for us. It's God that does that work. It's his work. We have to work out what he has worked in, Oswald Chambers said. I think he's the first, I don't know, he's the first one that I found that had written that down. Maybe somebody said that before him. But that's the idea here in this passage. We have to work out what he has worked in. It is his work to transform our hearts. It's his work that does the heart change. It is our work that then reflects that heart change. People should see that new life that is within you that he put there. He put that work into you. He made that change happen. Now you live that out. Now you walk that out. And as you look at the Philippians passage, Paul gives us great examples of what that should look like, both in the verses before 12 and 13 and then afterwards, as well as a great example of here's what Christ did. So a perfect example of what you should look like, what you should be doing, and an example of here's what Christ did, and here's how that was lived out in his life. We're not scratching our heads trying to figure out what is that supposed to be? How am I supposed to do that? He tells us how to do that. God's word guides us and leads us in knowing how to do that. His Holy Spirit helps direct us and to accomplish that. And as we look at the next uh, set of verses in our next sermon, we're going to see those things that we're to put on. So the things that we've put off don't belong there anymore. We're going to put on that new clean garment, those things that do belong in the life of the believer, that do better reflect that life of Christ that is within us. The Greek here gives us the sense of coming back to what we were, what we were created to be in Christ. Before sin perverted creation, we have a picture, a window in this new life in Christ of what God made us to be. And at this point, it's just, it's just a picture of that. Someday we're going to be with him and we're going to be revealed in glory and we're going to see the whole thing. We're going to see it, not dimly, but we're going to see him face to face. 
Someday we're going to be perfect reflections of him and perfect reflections of his heart. All right, so how do we do that? How are we supposed to be doing that now, being reflections of him? What do we put on, and how do we do this to be a good reflection of who he is? We do that through our growing in our understanding of who God is. So we are to be, oh, where is it in verse 10? We have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. That knowledge, a greater understanding of who is Christ. An understanding, seeking him, setting our mind on him, setting our hearts and our minds on him so that we are filled with him, letting our hearts show him. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What does your life show? What do people hear coming out of your heart and the things that you say? What are people seeing in you? If you are letting Christ and his word touch your mind, it's going to change your heart, and it's then going to transform the way that you live. Let God's word change you. Let it work within you, and you will reflect in greater intensity the life of Christ that is there residing within you you've been raised with Christ. And then Paul finishes in this section with verse 11. He says this, here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. There's no distinctions between ethnicity, social status, religious status, whatever it is. There are no distinctions in Christ because if you are in Christ, it is his life that is in you. In every single believer, regardless of whether you are from Westbrook or you are from the total opposite side of the world with a different culture, a different language, whatever the case may be, if the life of Christ is in you, that's the same life of Christ for any believer anywhere in this world. There is no room for any kind of segregation. There's no room for judging anyone because uh, in their case at the crossroads of so many different cultures, uh, you are Greek and civilized and you are not Greek and barbarian and therefore uncivilized. You are, uh, you are circumcised and therefore properly religious or you're not circumcised, so you're not properly religious. There's no room for any of that. There should be no time in any way, in any church, in anywhere in the body of Christ that there's segregation because of those things. It is the life of Christ that is within you. He does that work. And if anybody can say that, if anybody can say that there's no room for any kind of segregation, it's Paul. Because you think about how Paul started his walk with the Lord. Paul was one who fought zealously as a Pharisee to see the Christian movement totally squashed totally segregating himself as being the properly religious ones, the properly religious people, properly worshiping God, and doing everything in his power to see Christianity end, going to the ends of the earth to see people thrown in jail and killed. And his life changed because of his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. His life changed. The life of Christ came to live within him. That same life of Christ that was in those people that he was going to persecute. No more segregation. No distinctions in Christ because it is his life that is is within us. That's possible because of John 3.16. That's possible because of what Jesus did on the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He loved us in this way, that he sent Jesus to pay for the punishment for our sin, that all who would believe him, open and available to every single person, 
It is open and available as a free gift that all who would receive him would have that eternal life, that forever resurrected life through him. No room for distinctions, no room for segregation. We all have that same new life. If you are in Christ, you have that life within you. If you have that resurrected life, you are to be reflecting the image of Christ. And that means you are to be killing sin. To be reflecting him, you reflect him by seeking those things that are above. Setting your mind on those things that are above. Setting your mind on Christ. Let that transform you. Let that change you. Let that come out then out of the abundance of your heart. The mouth speaks. Let people see that in your life. If you're to be reflecting the image of Christ because you've set your mind on him, you're seeking those things that are above, that's going to mean that you need to be killing sin in your life. It does not belong in the life of the believer. And if you are killing sin in your life, you're reflecting his image, you're reflecting him, then you're going to be putting those things away. You're going to be putting away the stuff that does not better reflect his image. You're going to be putting on those things that do help you better reflect his life within you. You're going to be killing that sin so that when people look at you, they don't see you, they see Christ reflected in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the work that you do. We have to walk that out in our daily lives. That means being intentional, keeping our eyes focused and straight ahead on what you have called us to, the reality of who we are in you. But then we have to walk that out. I thank you that you don't leave us clueless. You don't leave us without help. You don't leave us without guidance to know what to do and how to do that. And we have your strength to accomplish that. Father, I pray that we would walk in that. We'd walk in your life, not in the flesh. We would walk in that newness of life that you give us. Because we've been raised with you, no longer slaves to sin, but now slaves to righteousness. And I pray that we'd be killing those things in our lives that don't belong. Those things that do not reflect you but those things that tarnish that reflection. Father, I thank you that we can go in your strength. In Jesus' name, amen.